Amen. Just to orientate ourselves, we are um, in the process of going to not the absolute beginners, but teaching teaching uh, people who are already motivated to learn introductory level, they still haven't got skills, they can struggle through a Hebrew text and you want to get them onto the the next stage of development. What we said is that in order to be able to teach, it's very different from being able to learn, in order to be able to teach something you have to be able to find a way of expressing and describing the process that you're going through in order to give it over to them to which we came up with a variety of different techniques. Um, first of all, the ultimate objective in any Talmudic session is to absolutely destroy the ever-present fiendish foe who we all know, even though we shudder to mention his name is... Vagueness. I was thinking so. Vagueness. You've got vagueness is there, so you're trying to eliminate him. To eliminate him, you have a series of steps which make the process absolutely clear you have clarity at your disposal you are empowered what we said is that every textual part of textual analysis is broken up into the three pillars of textual analysis known as structure pop structure powerful questioning and paradigm shift and what we discussed based in the introductory phase last week was that in order to analyze the step Gomorrah it's more complex in the Mishnah because it's a debate, it's not a series of statements, and therefore we have to introduce the process known as... No? Squatter! You have to be able to squatterize the Gemara and to be able to give a label to each and every stage. Now, what we're going to do today is going to be a very difficult mission. What I would like to do is I'd like to show you an application of the method to the Gemara in Chavzayin and with Beis in Baba Kama, the first, well, the second Gemara in Amenyach. Um, what I'd like to show you is how to apply this process of analysis to the Gemara in order to be able to give it over in such a way that a person with very, very limited skills and knowledge in Gemara will hopefully be able to understand what's going on. In order to do so, we're going to use a variety of different aids. We're going to use the board as a visual aid. We're going to try and make it, when you're teaching, even though I won't be able to have the luxury of doing it with you, interactive, as we said previously, that your role is a mediator, it's not a dictator. And what's vital is because we're used to learning, we absolutely miss the complexity of a given thought process in the Gemara. And this is really what's going to be the major thrust of today, is to be able to understand that what appears to be on the surface, for us after years of practice, a very simple process to a beginner is extremely complex. And what we're going to do is we're going to break down into different parts and see for ourselves how complex the process is and then we'll be able to understand the stages of the development of the logic and then we'll have the tools to be able to give it over to another. Okay? Are you ready? No. There, there, hopefully there are more copies coming very, very soon. 
Um, how many people do not have copies in front of you of Chav Zayin Omid Beis? Okay, there should be copies coming soon. Okay, so, <coughs> um, while the copies arrive, you don't mind, I'm just going to have to steal this. Let's, let's go back to what we saw, and this is what's going to, the Gemara, we, we, we saw the Mishnah. So this is the Mishnah. In the Mishnah, we saw two cases, correct? You divide up the Mishnah into two parts. The first part was, a person comes, I'm going to be speaking in English in order that you get a sense of what you're trying to do. A person comes, he places a jug in a public domain. Another person comes, stumbles over and breaks the jug. The person that breaks the jug is... Potter. He's exempt for the breakage of the jug. We don't yet know why. We've theorized. Part two of the mission is, but if the person that broke the jug gets damaged, the owner of the jug is? Very good. Very good. Um, graph into notion slightly lacking. So you've got the mission. So the mission's got two cases, correct? There's uh, jug being broken and person being hurt. So that's the Mishnah. Good? Now, we're going on to the Gemara. Those of you who have a copy of the Gemara in front of you, um, maybe I'll just sacrifice that for the Klau. Okay. If you haven't got a copy in front of you, try your utmost. They should be coming very soon. Try your utmost to be able to look at someone else's copy in order to share. Now, the stages are as follows. The first thing you do when you go through, the, go through a Gemara, you've got the share in front of you, they're waiting to hear it. What you want to do is you want to do something which seems strange. Even though they don't yet understand the words they're saying, encourage them to read through and translate in a loud and happy voice. As we've said before, that when you read through and you translate in a loud and happy voice, the, the actual the volume of your voice pushes you to make decisions in terms of the meaning of the words. If I say something softly and I mumble it, so I don't really make a, I don't make a decision about punctuation, about anything else. If I resolve, if, sorry, if I say it in a loud voice, I'm actually resolving as to what the meanings are. So when the people read it through the first, let's say, read it through, it's a small section, read it through with the class three or four times, you leading in your intonation which gives over the, the um, punctuation and the meaning and they will get into the habit of reading through themselves to be able to intuit meaning sometimes that if they went through slowly they wouldn't actually get. So the first step is you have to read through and translate. The next step is you have to divide and conquer. Dividing and conquering means numbering and labeling that means applying squatter to the actual process of the analysis of the Gomorrah itself um, see how many parts there are what you then have to do is you have to identify identify the players in the sugya who is saying what now this is crucial because sometimes the whole Shaklan Tire is based 
on the understanding that it was Rava that said this vote as opposed to Abaye. If you don't make a conscious note of who said what, so then you never get the clarity in the sugya. And then what we're going to go on to is um, a process of logical analysis which is called... Sorry, I went one step too far too soon. Sorry, once you've done that, in terms of Akasha, we're going to do crosshairs. Do you all know what crosshairs are? Crosshairs? Crosshairs are something like this. That's your target. Now, these are your crosshairs. And that's, that's the sight of a rifle. What you want to do is, whenever you have a kasha, you have to, now you don't have to get this guy in particular, um, but you, you have to know who is the makshan, the person who asks the kasha, who is, he, who, is he, who is he shooting at? So this is crosshairs. Okay? Crosshairs. And then finally, you're going to be dealing with what's called premise and shift. Premise shift. So now, read through, translate, divide and conquer, identify, cross is premise shift. Let's go through the Gemara and sort of time. The Gemara says, okay, um, we're on the Chavzayin and we're based at the top of the page. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do it as if I'm teaching the class, so forgive me on my pronunciation. So comes along the Gemara. Now what's happening is we're going back to the Gemara. The Gemara begins at the top of the page. Uvacher, and another came. Venitkalba, Veshavra. And he tripped over the jug and he broke it. Patu, he's exempt. Now, have any of you seen the statement somewhere before? Blank looks. Come on, try really hard. We had a little class yesterday. Blank looks. Do you remember the Mishnah? Ah, recognition. This is a quote to the Mishnah. How do I know that this has been quoted from the Mishnah and this is not part of the Gemara? Because it's enveloped between two colons. When you see two colons, that's indicating a quote from a previous time in the Gemara or in the Mishnah. Pay attention to that. Now, these things are obvious to you. You don't process them. Make a point. No one knows intuitively that the two colons are including a quote from a previous part. Tell it to them. is a quote from our Mishnah, which is quoted here in order to expand upon it. And the Gemara begins with part one. We're reading through and translating. I'm going to skip the stage because of time. I'm going to do these two stages together. I'm going to read through, translate, divide and conquer together. Even though when you're teaching, you should read through and translate without dividing and conquer. In other words, you should just go, Am I part And they, they're all joining in with you. So you've got your class going, Am I part And you're not translating, and they're going, Am I And they're struggling over the words, and you're leading the show, and then you keep on reading, and you say, And you keep on reading. That's what you do for three or four times for them to get the rhythm and the flow of the Gemara. We're not going to do that. We're going to go straight on dividing and conquering. So, they, they, should, they should try go along with you, not repeat after you. In other words, they, they, they'll be struggling. They'll be struggling, but after three or four times, they'll be listening to you and trying to pronounce it themselves. It becomes a little bit lethargic and, and laborsome if you say, Am I part And they go, Am I part Or, Am I part But you, you just do it along with them because 
You want to draw this. This, this. this is also a very crucial point. Even though what I'm telling you are a lot of different, di different technical stuff, you have to be very, very careful not to be caught into the tech technical stuff to at, the, at the expense of losing the, the geschmack and the, the vitality of the Gemara. There always has to be, in other words, these classes that I've taught you in the last two weeks, if you're teaching another class, even though you should teach them all this information, but it may take you 10 weeks to teach it. You don't want to make it too technically heavy because then people are going to get bored out of their minds. So you have to make this balance between in giving them technical information but still making it geschmack and enjoyable. Okay? So they're reading through with you. In other words, if you make the reading too laborious, you just give them a sense and let them hang a, come along. If they do, they do. To the degree they do, they do. And they don't, they don't. And my part to Why is he exempt? boy, it is required lay to him to go and to look, making sure that you translate each and every word accurately you can put onto them and you can tell them that there's such a thing called an infinitive that's a to-do word in Hebrew a to-do word begins with a lamed in Aramaic it begins with a lamed as well but in Aramaic every infinitive is an ui it's an ui lishnui laakshui liyuni so whenever you have a ui you know that it means to do it ah you've given them a clue in other words, you should give them these little clues along the way. So the first part of the Gemara, if you look at it, is we're going to break down the stages of the Gemara, divide and conquer. Number one is Amai Patu. I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Amai Patu. Iboile Lune Mezel. End of part one. In our squatter rising, this is a... Is this... Is this a question? Is this an answer? Is this a teretz raya? Am I part of why you exempt? You should look where you're going. Is that a kasha, teretz, a raya? A question, we lack information? Or is it a difficulty? It's a kasha. What are you saying, Tana, that you're a part of? You should be chayev because you should look where it's going. So we begin with a kasha. Part one is a kasha. Part two says the Gemara. Omri, they said, plural, Devei, the house, Rav, of Rav, Rav was a great sage, Mishmei, in the name of. The difference between Aramaic and Hebrew is, it's very misleading, because in Hebrew, the end letters, the suffix of yud -hei, go Eha. In Aramaic, yud -hei spells A, and it's equivalent of Oi in Hebrew, right? Mishmei means Mishmo, in the name of, Amri, Devei, Rav, said, the academy of Rav, Rav's Yeshiva, Rav Talmudic School, Mishmei the Rav, in the name of Rav, Bememalei, when he filled up, Rashuta Rabbi, Mizrei remember we had in the Mishnah, ah, I remember, is an abbreviation for Rashut, the domain, Harabim of the public, Kula, you refer, he filled up the public domain, Kula, its entirety, Chaviyot, with barrels. So, Part two is a terrace. It is a resolution. It is a terrace as a resolution. We had a difficulty. All we're doing now is dividing and conquering. We're not thinking about what the consequences are. We simply want to get the structure of the suga. Then we have Shmuel Amar, but Shmuel says Shmuel, another Amora. Amar, he says, Ba'afeila in darkness, Shano, it was taught. So we have Shmuel, and he says, in darkness, what is this? 
Teretz. It's another Teretz. And finally, we have Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan was an Amoyah. Did he come from Babylon or Israel? How'd you know? Because he's called Rabbi, whereas a Babylonian Amoyah would only be called Rab. There are more sheets over here. If anyone needs a sheet, raise your hands and Paris will give it to you. Okay. So now, we've got parts 1, 2, and 4. Yes. Are you waiting for seats? So now, you've got parts 1 through 4. Parts 1 through 4 is we have Akasha, Teretz 1, Teretz 2, Teretz 3. You following me? Yes? Now, the Gemara goes on and says, the following case. Now we have part 5. So now, at this point, at this point, in the sugya, what you'd like to do is you'd like to go to the people learning the sugya and you'd like to say, okay, guys, and the four of them sitting around, now would be appropriate to introduce the role playing. You say, I'm appointing you to be the one asking the difficulty and you three guys are going to be resolving them. One according to Rav, one according to Shmuel, one according to Rabbi And the Mishnah says that when you step on something in the Rishos Rabbim and you break it, you are exempt. The Gemara asks, why are you exempt? You should be liable. You should look where you're going. Comes along Rav and he says, you, You're right. When you step on something that should be you should be Chayef. But over here it's different because the entire Shushtarabi is filled with and you can't go so you have to and therefore you are getting the hang of this. Okay, then comes along Shmuel and he says, I have a different alternative. The reason why you're exempt is you're right. When you step on the Rishos Rabbim, you will be chayav. But over here, since it's dark, you can't see where you're going and therefore you are. Where comes along Ebiyech and he says, I've got a different way of resolving it. You're walking down the street and the reason why you don't see it is because it's around the corner and therefore you didn't know to anticipate it. And therefore, we have three ways of resolving our Mishnah. Go on. So, so now you ask the question and say, great question. Right now, we're just working on getting the structure straight. So hold on to your question. We're just going to get. So right now, we've got a kasha, teret one, teret two, teret three. One difficulty, and we've resolved it in three different ways, according to three different opinions, who are identification. They are Rav, Shmuel, Rabbi Yochanan. Yes. I have a person do it. Okay. This is not role play. This is interaction. Making sure that not you know the information, they know, they know the information. They may all nod and look at you and you say, do you all understand? And they go, yes. We all understand. I just say, you guys, you don't, again, you don't, depending on the level of how fun it has to be as you get more serious. So then you say, okay, guys, I want to just develop this section of the Gemara. We've got four parts of the Gemara. I want you to be stage one, two, three, and four. Let's go. Go for it. In other words, you're just, you're just getting the feedback from them. So now we've got, we've done is we've divided so forth. Now we come on to a very, very difficult part of the Gemara. I'm going to skip stages. Or I'm going to skip an explanation of these stages. I'm just going to read them through. The Gemara goes and says the following. I'm a papa. Comes on a papa. Says, I'm a says Rav Papa. Rav Papa is a, he's an Amoya. Where did he come from? Lord Daker Matnitin 
Ella, whenever you have a law and Ella, it means only law daker, it is not exacting mat nitin our Mishnah Ella, but or either Kashmul, like Shmuel, or Karebi Yochanan, or like Karebi Yochanan. Why? The Ikarav, that if it would be going like Rav, my, what? Area is the reason, Nitkal, that it cites the case of stumbling. Afilu, even Shavar, if he broke it, Nami, he would also be exempt. So over here, I'm going to go through this too fast. Rapopa is a Kasha. Comes along, Ravzvid, and gives a third. Omar Ravzvid, Mishmei Rava. So it comes on Rav Zvid in the name of Rava. Who had din, similarly, this is also the case. Who had din, literally translated, who this had din is the case, or loosely translated, the, word, the phrase means similarly. The Afilu Shavar, even if he broke it, he would be exempt. Vahai, and that, Dikatani, that the Tana taught. Over here, Gentlemen, you see, there are two Aramaic prefixes. The means that, and ka means an untranslatable Aramaic prefix. You add emphasis. You can always get them with that one. Ka is untranslatable. You can get them on the S's and the Ka's. Vahid the Katanya, that which we, it, he taught, Nitkal, the case of Nitkal, Aidi, since the Ba'i that he wanted, Lemitni, to teach. Safer the latter part of the Mishnah. Open quotation marks. The latter part of the Mishnah says, V'im huzak ba, and if it was damaged in it, he was damaged in it. Baal chavit, the owner of the jug, chayav benizko, is liable with his damages. That there, the davkenitka, the owner of the jug, is only liable when it specifically he stumbles. Aval bat shava, if he broke it, law, then he's not liable. My timer, what is the reason? Who he, meaning the breaker, the Azik is causing damage on himself. Katani, that's why he taught Rasha the first part, Nitkal, that he stumbled. So that was a huge mouthful. The chances are, when you're saying it over, by this time, no one has understood what you've said, but all you're doing is you're translating and you're orientating them. What you're going to do later is you're going to flesh out the precise meaning. So right now, I'm going to say to them, Rav Zvid is a resolution to the Kasha. And the truth is, guys, I don't expect you, I'm saying to this year, I don't expect you to have understood this. We're going to go into this, um, when you go, we're going to this much more detail later, but we're just getting the structure of the Sugya now. We have to build it up slowly, stage by stage, to defeat the ultimate enemy, the atomic student, who is... And therefore, now we have six parts. We began with the kasha. We had three turetim. Then we had another kasha with the terrace. And now we're going to the seventh part. And the seventh part is... Amalei um, Rebbe Abba said to him, Rebbe Abba, who did he say to? He said to Larav Ashi. Said Rebbe Abba to Rabbi Ashi, Hachi, this. Gentlemen, you have to be very careful. I say to the Shir, there are a lot of Aramaic words which can often be confused. Make a note, and this is what I do to them. At some stage, at the early stages, you have to tell them the difference between all these words which sound mamish the same. Hacha, 
Hachi, Hacha, Hechi, Hecha, and you have to say to them, you have to describe the difference between them, because otherwise they're going to think Hachi means Kya, and Hacha means this, and Hechi means how, and you won't get, oh, Hechi does mean how. <laughs> so, so you have to tell them, Hachi, Hachi Ami B'marava, this is what they said in the West, since Babylon was to um, the east of Israel, so whenever we refer to Israel, you tell them, we refer to them as being in the west. Mishmei, we now know what Mishmei means, because you taught, learned it before, and Mishmei means in the name of Aramaic, De Rebi Ola. Now, the Rebi, the guess is Rebi Loi, but at this point in time, that would be way, way too com- confusing for them to tell them that the word that says in the Gemara is actually not the word they should be reading, so just read it, leave it as Rebi Ola, okay? Even though it makes no sense, but for the, this point in the Rebbe Ula, Hachi Amir B'marav, this is what they say in the West in the name of Rebbe Ula, Lefi, because She'ein, it is not Darkan, the way of Shel B'nei Adam, it is not the way of people, Lehitbonein, to contemplate, to look carefully, Bedrachim, in the way. So now we have another, sorry, now we have another Terence, and we have and he gives us a terence. So now we know the structure. The structure of the Gemara has got seven parts to it. It begins with the Kasha. Then there are three resolutions to the Kasha. Then there's another Kasha and a terence. And then there's a final resolution. Now what you could do is, at, a, at, at this point in time, you'd say, okay guys, now what we want to do is we want to go it. Let's see if you've got it, and now we'll try to incorporate the understanding at the same time, and perhaps solve this problem over here, and then we'll go a bit into, into the bit of in-depth analysis. So let's go again. Now what you do is do that again, and you say to them, okay, let's go through. Stage one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay? So now, just for your sake, let's clarify. The Mishnah presents the case, Mishnah presents the case that when you trip over something and you break it, you are not held to be exempt. The Gemara is a tremendous problem with that. Part 1. It says you should be held liable because you're responsible to look where you're going and therefore why aren't you liable? The first answer says because it's filled up with, with, with completely blockaded, you have the right to break. The second answer in the name of Shmuel says it's dark. The third answer in the name of Rebuchanan says because it's around the corner. Now I'm going to speed up the process and help you much, much more than I normally would in the class. I let them sink in those ideas. Now I'm going to go to the middle case, which is Rav Papa and Rav Zvid. Rav Papa and Rav Zvid come to ask and present a difficulty against Rav. The first answer, Rav, how can you say that the case is that the public domain is jam-packed with <coughs> barrels? That makes no sense. And I'm going to say way too much and I'm going to retrace my steps. That makes no sense. Because in that case, you are legitimately, you are allowed to break those barrels and therefore, why would the Mishnah limit the case to when you stumbled and broke them without intention? Even if you broke them intentionally, you'd still be exempt. And therefore, Rav, your understanding of the Mishnah doesn't fit into the words of the Mishnah, and you are wrong. To which Rav Zwid resolves it, and he says, You are wrong, and I am right in the name of Rav. I'm going to show to you how really the Mishnah does make sense. And when it says stumbles, it doesn't mean to exclude breaking it deliberately. It was said for a technical reason in order to create symmetry between the first and the second part of the Mishnah. Okay? Now, how many of you understood what I just said? Not bad. About, about a third. A third. So, so now, do you understand that that's... 
a very complex point and when we go into it you'll see how even more complex than you imagine it was but right now I'm going to leave it and go on to the last part which is Rebbe Ula Rebbe it's all illogical because we know how to learn Gemara that wouldn't be a rest of Rebbe Ula okay I'll explain to you good so now we're going to Rebbe Ula and Rebbe Ula is coming to give an alternative answer to the original to the original case the original case is why are you why are you exempt? You should look where you're going. Comes on Rebbe and he says, No, you should not. You don't have to look where you're going because people don't look where they're going. Good? Okay, that's just to get the structure clear and get a basic, a basic overview of what's going on. Now, you see, it's, it's very hard without interaction to maintain the flow because people get lost in the logical flow. So that's why you have to keep on going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to make sure they're with you. The minute they lose a train of thought, you've lost them and you've been able to lose your audience. <laughs> Good. Okay, so now, yes. What, what, what? I think you went over it twice. Um, being so complicated that people missed it. Why do you want to do that? Why don't you just get everything clear as it presents itself? So if I'm working with, in other words, what we're doing now, let's say, I would, I would slow down. What I want to do is I just want to give you a sense of what's going on. So I'm not demonstrating to you precisely how the, the class should be taught. I just want to get a sense of how the class should be taught. Because, uh, again, when we, the, this, the, even these, this kasha with these three turritim, it could take 45 minutes. I explained to you why. Okay? So let, 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 let's cut off the Gemara and just focus on this part of the Gemara. And now we'll focus on these stages of crosshairs, premise, and shift. So now, let's. Yeah. When you uh, check with them to see that they're with you and you see that they're not glassy eyed and slapped on, wouldn't you just say it all the over again? Definitely not. Definitely not. The minute you say, great expression. The great expression, what happens when you look at the, you look at the people around you and they look very much um, like you are right now. His expression was, glassy eyes and slack-jawed. I've, the slack-jawed is a fantastic offer. Um, so, so, so what do you do? How do you, how do you get them, how do you get them back into it? Do you just go over it again? No, no, no. Because then they'll get glassy eyes and slacker-jawed. You'll see it. In fact, you'll start to, have you ever, have you ever, what often happens is one of the most demoralizing things as a teacher is the chicken. Have you seen the chicken? The chicken is something like this. And that, that, that can go on, it generally goes on, I mean not to have experience, it generally goes on for like three and a half minutes before the chicken dies. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the chicken's dead. He asked, what do you do? So what you do is, what you do is, you <laughs> great point. What, what you do is, you don't want that to happen. So, so, so you can do a lot of things. You can, you can demonstrate the chicken, and that gives over a very important message. But what you do is you, you, you confront the person. You confront the person. You say to him, you say to the person, are you getting it? So he goes, sure, Rabbi. So okay, just say it over. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let him say it over. So, so, okay, do you want to say it over? No, 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 no. Let him. And then you've, you've, you've got them back. You put, you, the only way to keep the energy going is you have to constantly uh, deal with the, the tension of putting people in the spots and confronting them. Because it is interactive in such a way that they don't get despondent. So you push them as far as they can go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
Um, if nobody's got it, then you have to start from scratch. But hopefully... Do you recommend embarrassing them in public? Um, it depends. It depends on the on the, on on the on the dynamic of the group. In other words, if that's like a given, when when you're with your friends, you say funny comments that you both enjoy. If you're English, it's called banter. <laughs> you enjoy a bit of banter, right? So you can banter in the class as well. First of all, how long? Because I presume that the students will point out very quickly if you do all these pages one after another. It depends. It depends on the dynamic in the share. If the dynamic in the share is alive, so then people literally don't notice the passage of time. Sometimes you get to the end of the share and they'll say to you, oh, "Is it now already?" In other words, it depends on how engaged they are. If if they are with you, the time flies. If they get lost, the time goes on forever. Generally, generally with with people start to get tired intellectually so then you but again it depends on the group it depends on the context <coughs> sorry no more questions goodbye um, <coughs> so now what you want to do is again this is all abbreviated you've got a kasha with three terutsim now what we said is we divide and co- we read through and translate we divide and conquer we identify these three opinions now what we have to do is cross his premise and shift this is a basic thing whenever you have a kasha whenever you have a kasha you have to realize that the kasha doesn't exist in a vacuum the kasha is a problem that you're presenting against an individual Crosshairs means who is the maksham, the one asking the kasha, shooting at. Now, many times we learn the kasha and we don't make explicit who the kasha is aimed at. What you have to do is you have to say, who is in the crosshairs of the Gemara's kasha? It says, my party boy, who is the Gemara asking on the tunnel of the Mishnah? Now, with crosshairs, you have to do the following thing. You have to say to the person, or oh, do it yourself, when you ask in Kasha, since crosshairs is such a crucial component, you now put into your own words as if the person is standing opposite you and now you ask them the Kasha. And when you ask them the Kasha, a Kasha is a difficulty. If there's a difficulty, it creates an emotional imbalance inside of me. If I see something which is extremely bothersome and I say, wow, it's so strange how that person's hanging from the top of the roof. That's, that's interesting. Uh, even more coffee. There's something dre- desperately wrong. When the, the Chazanish says a fa- funny thing. He says that, he says, Yeshamayim is measured by how affected you are by the Kasha. In other words, if a person reads a Kasha, it means that something in front of you is desperately wrong. So you say, oh, it's desperately wrong. But in real life, when something goes very wrong, you become emotionally involved. So when you have the kasha, you have to create emotional involvement, which means you have to imagine you're asking all this. So now the, the, comes along the Tana, and he says that when a person stumbles and breaks something in the Rishusha Rabbim, the person that broke it is not liable, he's exempt. You say, what are you talking about? I'm a human being. I know the mission says Adam word Lailam. And therefore a person is responsible to look where you go. And now this unthinking absolutely inconsiderate clumsy oaf breaks it and you done it say he's partner <laughs> that's called crosshairs it becomes 
absolutely clear that there's a battle going, there's a battle going on here and you have a problem. Now, once you have the kasha, you then divide it up into the, what is the assumption? Every kasha is based on assumption. And most often, not always, but most often in the Gomorrah, the assumption has got two parts to it. The premise has got two parts to it. So, this has got two parts to it. Generally, the parts can be described as the scenario, the scene, and the theory, the idea. So, we now have, when I ask the kasha on the Tana, it's because I have, a, in my mind, an understanding of what the case looks like, and I have a theory, a, a value that I hold, meaning, I understand that the case is talking about in broad daylight, in the middle of the Rosh Hashanah it's not around the corner, there is only one jug, and the reason why I should not be, the reason why I should be liable, my theory is, people should look where they're going. So the two parts to my premise are, it's in broad daylight with one single jug in the middle of the road, and I have to look where I'm going, correct? So, I have to look where I'm going is the theory. The scene is broad daylight, middle of the road, one jug. Those are the two parts to the premise of Makasha. If so, I have tremendous difficulty with Yutana. You following me? Some type of sign of life, reciprocation, slack, slack-eyed, jossy glad. Okay, good. So every premise has got two parts to it. Now, we have given three turretim, and then over here we have a fourth turret to this kasha. We've got two parts to the kasha. The scene that we assume, and the theory that we assume. What is the significant difference between kashas, teretzim 1, 2, and 3, and teretz 4? Scenario is the way I envision the case. I put a card in the Rishon It was broad daylight. There was one card. It was not around the corner. And the theory is the reason why I'm asking this. The reason why I'm asking this is I believe people should look where they're going. There's an obligation for you to look where you're going and therefore you should be held liable. In this scene, with this theory, you should be held liable. That's the Hanukkah of the Maksha. That's right. That's right. Translated into English, the Hanukkah of the Maksha. <laughs> yes. Would you address the sub-theory as to why it's necessary to look at this point or not? Sorry? Would you, would you address the sub-theory? Why is it necessary to look at this point or just go on with that? I don't know what you mean when you Why say... Oh, okay, okay. So that depends on the class. At this point, I wouldn't go into that. So now, you've got these two parts to the premise. So since you've got the scenario theory, so these first three terutim do one thing. In other words, either this is going to shift or this is going to shift, correct? If according to the first three, which shifts? But the theory stays the same. Meaning, you have to look where you're going, but these are exceptional cases. According to the fourth case... You shift the theory and you say you don't have to look where you're going and the case stays the same. So you see that in every premise there's two points and you can either adjust one or the other. Do you understand? Now, we processed that and we knew that but we didn't make a conscious effort to express it. Because the conscious effort wasn't made to express it, therefore it um, limits your clarity and when you give it over to someone else they don't properly understand what's going on. So that's premise shift. <coughs> the premise is what you hold and the shift is what happens in these four cases. Now, what I'd like to go on, uh, this is going to be quite rushed, 
but I'd like to just give it an attempt, is the extreme complexity in this middle part over here. What you want to do is, it's amazing how, I'm just giving you an illustration, it's not adequate, but just to show how complex this kasha is. Comes on Rav and he has a kasha with Rav. So really, if you wanted to flowchart it, which is something that you could do, in other words, the reason why you'll see this is, this is the original Mishnah. According to Rav, the Mishnah is no longer like that. It looks like this, where it's got lots of jugs blocking the road. According to Shmuel, um, it's pitch black. And according to Rabbi Yochan, and amazing illustrations, it's around the corner. And according to Ulla, it's exactly the same as the original case. Do you have so to teach the four, uh, the four meanings of zigzag? Four meanings of zigzag. So, uh, <laughs> very good. So, that's what's happening. Now, what you're doing is now, we're addressing here, we're addressing <coughs> Rav. So Rav comes and he says that there are barrels upon barrels blockading the Rishus Rabim, and Rav Zvid is coming to ask a kasha against him. So Rav Z- sorry, and Rav Papa is coming to ask a kasha against him. Rav Papa comes and says, I don't understand, Rav. Now, you saying that the case in the Mishnah is the Rishus Rabim is blockaded, and therefore the person, when he stumbles on it, he's not held to be liable, I have an issue with that. Now, the stages of the analysis of uh, Popper's kasha are manifold. Um, I try to break it down into stages, and you actually see that I broke down the kasha into four different stages. The way Rav Popper states is as follows. Rav Popper says, Part one. Part one is we create an affirmation that this case and that case fits back into the words of the Mishnah. So it's important to give over the sense that there's a constant relationship between the original text and the new understanding of the text. There's a constant relationship. So these two new understandings fit well into the text. Now this would be a great time to introduce one of the most basic and fundamental principles of all learning. And this would be such a fantastic example to teach people and you say to, the, you say to people, let me ask you a question. The Mishnah says, we'll focus on Rabbi Yochanan and Shmuel right now. The Mishnah says that if a person puts a jug in a public domain and he trips over it and he breaks it, the Mishnah says explicitly that he is potter. Now that we have the answers of Shmuel and Rabbi Yochanan. Let's say the Mishnah is referring to darkness or the Mishnah is referring to around the corner. When I say the statement, if a person goes and he puts a jug in a public domain and someone else comes and steps in and breaks it, the true answer to that halachic riddle is Chayef. Gentlemen, I don't understand. If you read the literal text of the Mishnah, it means the opposite of what it says. How can you reconcile that? So I would like to introduce you into what's known as the LLO. LLO. This is the fundamental process which Talmud goes through on a regular basis as we do in life. As we do in life. In life, there's always a conflict between what I understand and what I see. There's always a conflict between what's called appearance and reality. 
the things the way seem, the way they are, they present themselves on the simple level and the way that they really are, the meaning behind them. Now, whenever I read a text, my first approach when I see the text is I always take the text at the most literal level. You always begin with the pastus. You read the words and the words mean what they say. However, if I get to a stage where the meaning of the words doesn't make sense in my mind, then I have a license to perform what's called a logic language override principle. Whenever there is a conflict between logic and language, logic wins. You sacrifice the literal understanding of the words for the logical understanding. This is the entire thrust of the relationship between the Gemara to the Mishnah. And the catchword for that is Hachi Whenever you see Hachi you know a logic language override has just occurred. So you're teaching them from the start that when you have a struggle, you always, number one, begin with the pastures. If you come up with a logical problem, you have the right to do a logical language override. But there's a condition in your logic language override. You're only allowed to do a logic language override if once you've overridden the language, you can still squeeze it in. It can get fetched in. And then teach them the word fetch. Because it makes perfect onomatical sense. Fetch! Only you can only only if you can quetch it in. If it can't be quetched in, so then you can't logically you can't you can override the language. You can't obliterate the language. That's the wrong guess of LLO. Logic language obliteration. No, 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 no. Logic language override. You can override the text, but you can't obliterate it. Which is exactly going to be the kasha of Rab Papa to Rab. He's saying you're not overriding the language, you're obliterating the language. Be Shlema according to Shmuel Rabbi Yochanan. We can still squeeze them in. Granted, it's not the simple reasoning. It's a logic language override. But Rav, it can't even go back into the words of the Mishnah. It doesn't fit in. That's a logic language obliteration. It doesn't go. Okay, do we have to stop now? Keep on going. No question, no questions. Okay, so that's going to be... So in other words, <coughs> the, the way that Rapop is going to ask him, now you've given them that piece of knowledge, because they... So comes along Rapop and he says, I understand the logic language override as performed by Rabbi Yechnen, as performed by Shmuel. It's difficult to understand the text. Logically, it makes no sense that you should be exempt because you should look where you're going. So I can force him when it says that you put the, the jug in the Rishus Rabbim, it meant you put it there at night or you put it around the corner. But according to Rav, let's try and fit his words back into the text. Part one is the affirmation of Shmuel Rabbi Yechnen. Part two is the idea that the word stumbles, nitkal, limits the case to a certain level of responsibility. When a person stumbles, so he's not, he's not malicious in his act of damage. He stumbles on it. It's by mistake. So since the Mishnah says, stumbling exempts you, you can take out your super diuk wide arch thumb and say, you stumbled, you're exempt, but if you break it, you are 
Chayev. So it, it reaches the upper level. Whereas according to Rav, even if you break it, you'll still be exempt. So now, there's a big missing page over here. In other words, why are you exempt according to Rav if you break it? There's a big chunk missing. Now, you've learned logic language override. Now let me teach you where the majority of the text of the Talmud Bavli is contained. Does anyone know where the majority of the text of the Talmud Bavli is contained? Almost. Uh, the majority of the text, not bad, the majority of the text of the Talmud Bavli is not contained on the page. The page is but a tip, a tip, a small tip of the iceberg. The majority of the text of the Talmud Bavli is contained in your mind. You have to figure it out. So now, there's a massive piece, chunk of logic missing over here. The whole logical point, we say like this, Rav, you don't fit into the ma- you don't fit into the Mishnah. Because the Mishnah says stumbled, and according to you, even if you break it, you'll be exempt. Why? Where did that come from? So now we have to introduce underneath, underneath the surface of the water, a whole new logical parameter. That logical parameter is that when someone obstructs my way and stops me from moving forward, I am entitled to take the law into my own hands and break away any obstruction. And therefore, if Rav says the case he's talking about where your way is blockaded, you have the right to break. Since we now know this principle, let's go back to what the Mishnah says. It says, stumbled, exempt, breaking liable. That's not going to fit with Rav. Rav, your case is completely not possible to be learnt in the Mishnah. You following me? Yeah. So you, what you've done is you've done affirmation of, Rav, of Rabbi Yochan and Shmuel, teaching them the purpose of logical language override. Rav, introducing them to the notion of the majority of the text of the Talmud is not in the Talmud and therefore over here, logically Rav doesn't fit in, it's not an LLO, it's an LLO, obliteration. Therefore, we have a problem, how is Rav going to get out of this? Now of course, at this point in time, they'll say, wow, there's no way Rav can get out of this, which is exactly what you want them. The, the geschmack of Gemara is that when you get to the Kasha, people can't see how could there could ever, ever be a Teretz. So what you have to do is you have to maximize that. You say, there's clearly no way Rav can get out of this. I mean, you would have thought that Rav, being the head of such a large Talmudic academy, being able to revive the dead, would be able to learn a Mishnah. And now you see, completely blown out the water. That's ridiculous. So, we'll have to just give up and go home. Okay, guys, let's end the show. Goodbye. And then I said, no, Rav, Rav, Rav. said, no, no, sorry. And what you can do sometimes, sometimes it's very good to leave a share at that point. But then the rabbi doesn't tell us the answer, you say. Exactly. But the rabbi is an answer. I don't know, maybe. And then <laughs> you leave them in. For us, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the terrace. So if we thought that Rav Papa's kasha was difficult, I've, when I divided up the terrace of Rav Zvid, it came to, this is our, they came to three basic points, and the third point is subdivided into seven. So let's go with Rav Zvid. So Rav Zvid comes, and Rav Zvid comes and he gives a terrace. Says Rav Zvid. Om Rav Zvid. Om Rav Zvid. Mishmei Derova. Hu Adin Dafilu Shava. So first of all, Rav Zvid is coming to dismiss the understanding that we initially had. Part one. Hu Adin Dafilu Shava. Our kasha was based on the premise. The pre- premise was that breaking accidentally 
excludes breaking deliberately. If I stumbled and fell, that's when I'll be exempt. If I break deliberately, I'll be liable. Comes along his read and he says, no, that's not true. Even if you break it deliberately in the Mishnah, it doesn't exclude the fact that you'll be exempt. Automatic next step. What do you mean? If it's true that even breaking will be exempt, why did the Mishnah use a case of stumbling? It should have taught me even when you break it, you're exempt. Part two. Part three. The reason why it didn't choose the case of breaking even though it would be much more clearer even though it would be much more informative is for a secondary reason what's the secondary reason so now we go into this now we need to do parts one two three four five six seven so now again comes along and he says, first of all, that which you said that Shavar should be taken as an exclusion of that, that Niska means not Shavar, Niska means even Shavar. If it means even Shavar, tell me Shavar and not only Niska. The answer is, it's got to do, I'm going to give you a clue, the answer is, it's got to do with a principle known as symmetry. That when you're presenting a case, all the parts of the case have to match up. And that's exactly how we're going to justify why the Mishnah chose the word Nitkal and not the word Shavar. The reason why I did is as follows. Let me take you on a journey to the latter part of the Mishnah. The latter part of the Mishnah says that if I, when I trampled on this jug, I was damaged, so then you have to pay for my damages. Now let's think. Let's think about the different ways of how you trample on the jug. Well, you could trample introducing demonstration because by now they are glass-eyed and slack-jawed. So you say, imagine at this point in time you have to get the person and he's got his coffee in front of him. Imagine that this is the jug and now the jug's lying on the floor. Now, there are two ways I can break this jug. I can be walking, I can by mistake break it. Or else I can do a premeditated washer-giri kick on the jug and go ah! now if i took the second example and as i did that in the first case if i stumbled over it and i went ah and i got a big shard in my foot so then you can understand why you're liable but if i do a premeditated wash again and i land and i go ah! and then i get a massive chunk in my foot whose fault is it my fault Great. So let's go to the latter part of the Mishnah. The latter part of the Mishnah says, when I break the jug, you are liable to pay for me. That can only be true if I stumble. But if I do a wash and give me super roundhouse, Chuck Norris kick and land on the jug, am I liable or am I exempt? Are you liable or are you exempt for my paying my damages? No. You're going to be exempt because I damaged myself, correct? Okay, so since the latter part of the Mishnah says that the owner is liable, it can't be talking about a case of deliberate damage. It must be talking about a case of stumbling. So in order to illustrate the din, the law in the second case, we compromised the language in the first case and that's why don't take nitkal literally. It's not coming to exclude breakage. It's coming to complement the second part of the Mishnah and therefore Rav fits perfectly in. Yes? No. Uh, no, no, sorry. no questions. <laughs>
I like this. Okay, so now what's happened is the techniques that you're using are you're using a, you're using a whole range of techniques. Number one, you're trying to break it down into the different parts. Number two, you're trying to illustrate through your bodily movements and washigiri kicks exactly what occurs so that the logic then and then you have to go back now at this point in time this point in time the ideas even though they've understood them are by no way solid in their mind there still needs to be a lot of discussion going on because essentially what's happening is you're teaching them a lot of different ideas but what you're doing is you are teaching them that there's this constant relationship there's a relationship between the original text and the way it's the way it's manipulated, the way it's the way it's molded, the way it looks different. Um, now the question is, I think for now, I think we can stop there. Now we can take some questions. We're going to have um, exactly one minute of questions. Great.